This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Well-being is for everyone. You don't have to wait until things are better before you can live the quality life you want to enjoy. Tanya J. Peterson has created the brand Well-Being and Words to empower people to make their own well-being. She tells stories through novels of regular people struggling with mental health challenges. She also writes self-help books to guide people through the process of reclaiming well-being. She writes the Healthy Place Anxiety Schmanxiety column, newsletter, and many other articles on their website. Everything Tanya does relates to empowering people to enhance their mental health and well-being and enjoy their lives. Valeria Tellis interviews Tanya J. Peterson about her book, 101 Ways to Stop Anxiety, Practical Exercises to Find Peace and Free Yourself from Fears, Phobias, Panic Attacks, and Freakouts. Anxiety is a snare, a suffocating and confining trap. Anxiety, worry, and fear usurp your thoughts and emotions and dictate your actions. When this happens, people often feel as though their lives are severely limited. Whether you are feeling severely limited or somewhat limited due to anxiety, this episode might help you move right through your anxiety, past it, and onward to the life you desire. Forward movement is at the heart of Tanya J. Peterson's work. Drawing from her previous experience as a teacher and board-certified counselor, as well as from personal experience, Tanya J. Peterson, MS, NCC, writes books and articles to help people empower themselves to both reduce obstacles like anxiety and move forward despite them to create a quality life. Her books include 101 Ways to Stop Anxiety, Practical Ways to Find Peace, The Mindfulness Workbook for Anxiety, The 8-Week Solution to Help You Manage Anxiety, Worry and Stress, the 5-Minute Anxiety Journal, A Creative Way to Stop Freaking Out, The Mindfulness Journal for Anxiety, and Break Free, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy in Three Steps. She's written several mental health-themed novels as well. Tanya also writes extensively for the mental health website HealthyPlace.com, including the weekly Anxiety Schmanxiety blog, has posts on The Mighty, and is a regular contributor to the website Choosing Therapy. 
Here is the interview with Tanya J. Peterson. In your own words, who is Tanya J. Peterson? Oh, Tanya J. Peterson is a simple person. I have a background in teaching and counseling and uh, writing that I, I pulled together, but I am somebody that loves to embrace life and all of its challenges and just live my life mindfully, simply, simply moment by moment as it comes. So I, I like to say, you know, my middle name is Joy because it actually is. <laughs> I have the, the J stands for joy. And, and that kind of is really a fitting descriptor of, of me. I like to find the joy despite all the problems and help people do the same. Mm, that sounds great. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, 101 Ways to Stop Anxiety, Practical Exercises to Find Peace and Free Yourself from Fears, Phobias, Panic Attacks, and Freak Outs. So my first warm-up question is, what is life? Life is a grand adventure in a simple adventure, I guess, too, at the same time. Life is a big series of moments. I, I think when we live life, when we shrink it down and, and we live in our moments, I think we can create a, a really good life. Life is just our experience, how we're living, what we're doing, who we're with, and, and what we want to make of it, I guess. It's just a, a really good, grand adventure and experience. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, what is the opposite of life, Tanya? You know, the opposite of, of life, I think, is um, honestly probably not necessarily lifeless or death, because those are those are those are obvious. But I, I would say the opposite is listlessness or resignation. I, I think if you're just going along, uh, feeling beaten down by challenges or if you don't if you don't feel like you're living your passion you know if, if you don't have that spark if you don't have that joy you might be alive but that's not that's not the true life and in what life is all about yes yeah i agree you speak of being in the moment i think you said a couple of times and this is something that it's very interesting and sounds very spiritual to me does it have any spirituality involved when you say that? Is that a spiritual concept or just a way of living? I leave it very wide open uh, when I talk to people about that or when I write about it. I guess the technical term, you know, it's, it's mindfulness. It's, it's living in that moment, being fully aware and fully present and just open. And it can have a spiritual component. It can have a secular component. Uh, it can be as personal as people make it. I guess for me, it, it has a degree of, of spirituality because there's a connection to something greater, whether you call it life or the universe or or spirit or whatever. Um, it, it, it has, for me, the connotation is something bigger, and yet you're living it small and you're living it in the moment and connected. But it's very personal. It does not have to be spiritual. It does not have to be religious. It just depends on on you. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of um, religious and spirituality and all that, um, what, where and who is God to you? God is that is really honestly very hard to define. And that is something 
that is on my mind. I don't consider myself vastly religious as far as a, you know, as rule based and, and ritual, but I think God is very much part of that. I honor that a great deal I, uh, for people who are. I respect that and I honor that. I think God is is life force. I think God is out in the universe. God is in every every little leaf, every little bug. It's in all of us, however we conceptualize it. It's connection. It's, it's life. It's uh, being able to just be. God is, is presence in stillness all at once. Wow. Um, how do you define freedom? Freedom is one of, uh, depending on, on uh, different backgrounds of philosophy and psychology you look into, freedom is actually considered uh, one of our basic human needs. Um, we have a need for freedom. I, William Glasser identified five, and freedom was was one of one of those top five uh, basic human needs. Freedom is not necessarily being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, according to just us. I mean, that's plain, that's just hedonism and pleasure and, and self-serving. And that's not freedom to me. To me, freedom is being able to live well within your sphere and being able to create your moments, having your ability to say, hey, I'm facing this challenge or I've got this situation that isn't right. And maybe I, I don't have my life exactly the way I want to live it, but I have the power. Freedom is power to take any little moment and shape it and live it well, despite any other restrictions that you have. You can be very free and face restrictions at the same time. Oh, wow. And this is a good time to reflect on what you just said, yeah, the meaning of freedom, the way you describe it. Let me ask you the question that relates to what's happening now, I guess. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? Oh, my goodness sakes. I think the world needs breath. The world needs to collectively just take a slow, deep, cleansing breath over and over just to have a sense of calm and centeredness. It's maybe yeah, that, that breath is going to lead to centeredness. We just collectively need to stop freaking each other out and start to be centered and uh, approach things step by step. And there's a lot out there. I think, you know, people speak of the media and, and how they may or may not be contributing to this. And I do not want to point fingers or blame or anything. And maybe there, I'm sure there are journalists with a very good heart that are trying to do well. But in general, there's just so much, so much information and so much panic and so much heated emotional stuff. It's hard to be centered. And I think if we can find our center individually and collectively, we can regain uh, health and well-being. Yes, I agree. Wow. Um, do you watch TV these days? Or you... Very little. I, I do. A lot of times, like my family and I will pop on a recording or a movie. Um, I do not turn on live TV and just let it stream nonstop because to me personally, that feels very toxic. And then I'll notice my own anxiety and frustration rising. That's a good way of knowing what is beneficial and what's not beneficial for us, right? The way we feel about something. Yes, exactly. Every I would say, you know, definitely, if we tune into ourselves, because we all have a different tolerance level and we do need information. We can't bury our heads in the sand, but listen, listen to your mind and your body and your soul 
and notice when you're, you're starting to feel those anxiety reactions and stress reactions and then step away. Yeah. Yeah. Having that wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Tanya? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I have two more warm up questions. What is love to you? Love, love is understanding. Love, I think the big, if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be non-judgmental. Another word might be accepting. Uh, when we love another human being, uh, we are saying, I, I value you and I accept you for who you are minute by minute. And I might not approve of absolutely everything you do, but I value you for who you are. And, and you know, the human being that, that is in front of me and that is in my life. And I don't judge you or try to conform you into my own mold of what I think some, you, know, you should be. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I have to use the word love again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the description of love. <laughs> um, my last question is, um, what do you think is the purpose of your life? Oh, my gosh. I keep the word be and exist just keeps kind of floating around. I can actually see it. I think the, the purpose of my life is, is to be, is to live, going back to our definition of, of living, but it's to be, it's to exist with myself and with others. It's about a nice, calm, peaceful relationship again with, with myself, with those in my life, with strangers. It, it, it means to be, to be, to live together. I like that a lot. Why is it so challenging to find the purpose of our lives? Like my purpose, I think I found it when I was 38, I'm 43 now. <laughs> Why does it take so long? Um, I think part of it is it, it's, a, it's a work in progress because we grow and we change and we go through different stages of development as humans. I mean, we're all different, but we all go through the same stages. And that is actually really common as you're in your late 30s. Um, in early 40s, that's a common transition period in where we kind of, we know ourselves better and we have life experience. And so we can define our purpose more deeply. Uh, Not that it necessarily changes, but it completely, but it does become more, more defined. And purpose, I think, is a process that really shouldn't be rushed. You know, we have to come to know ourselves and we have to have our share of life ups and downs and bumps, all of those things do have a purpose. You know, some people may call it divine intervention. Some people call it just random happenings. And there's no way to know for sure if it's random or if it's if it's preordained. But we do have these experiences and they shape us and we learn and we grow from them. And in, until we have a kind of, I think, enough life under our belt, we really can't define what it is that we want. That's true, Tanya. Yeah, experience. Yeah, nothing can really replace that, right? Right, right. Personal experience. And that's one of my first questions relating to the work you do. You write a lot about anxiety. We will talk today about one of your books, 101 Ways to Stop Anxiety. But you have many others that you wrote also about anxiety. Beautiful work. Uh, you sent them to me. It's just wonderful to look at it even. Calms you down just by flipping the pages. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
I would love to take credit for that because I've always, I, I always think, oh, I would like to be an artist. I have this vision of myself as a painter and I've got paint all over this blue shirt. My hair is held back with brushes. And that is, that is just a false image because I can't trust a person. But so there were wonderful artistic teams on these, these books. And I didn't even meet the people, but I just, I'm so grateful to them for creating. I, I like that you said they're calming. And I think when they hear this, they will also be happy that you said that. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful work uh, in every way. So um, my first question is about the reason. Why do you write about anxiety specifically? What is your personal experience with anxiety? Well, I, I like to write about it because it's it's part of the human condition. I mean, you know, put, there's, there's anxiety disorders and then there's anxiety and, and we all have some sort of anxiety. I have lived with it most of my life. I did not realize it for a long time. But I, you know, now again with that experience, you know, knowing looking back and knowing what it was, I think, oh yeah, that that has really plagued me for a while. Uh mine has been social and it's been uh perfectionism, which is a type of performance anxiety. You know, going back, I was always worried about being judged and not living up to expectations. And they were my own high, false, you know, kind of just unrealistic expectations. They weren't even imposed from the outside, but that really kept me, well, from full freedom, I guess. Going back to one of your questions about what is freedom, it kept me from being able to really live the way I wanted to moment by moment, because I was constantly worried about failing or not measuring up or being judged or doing or saying the wrong thing. And And that's that's not a good way to live. We can't really live just freely and calm and centered like that. And so through various ups and downs and life experiences, and I can elaborate on anything you want, but I don't want to babble <laughs> and, and take up the whole space with this. But, but um, you know, through various ups and downs, you know, I've come to have a different relationship with myself, realize what anxiety is. And I think, you know what? Everybody should be able to live centered and free. So I kind of, I, I embrace that as, as my purpose in, in my writing. And the word for that, the, the word we use in our society is just, you know, anxiety. So there's, there's where that word pops up in all of my, most of my book titles, anxiety, just because we recognize that. Right. Yeah. And it is such a common you know, state of mind. So true. We can easily experience, right? So going back to the freedom that you just mentioned again, and that living moment by moment without worries, anxiety, fears. I'm wondering if living in the moment also allows us to remember, plan, uh, imagine. How do we make space? How can we live, be in the moment and at the same time, plan, remember, and imagine? So... You know, that living in the moment, you know, de definitely we don't want to just be in a box in this moment. We we want to be have a full, rich life experience. We have our memories and those are great. And we have our goals and our visions for the future. I have vision boards that I use. So that is actually future oriented. That's not necessarily present. But all of those things are there and they're part of who we are and they're part of our our why, why we're doing things, our purpose. And they shape our how, how we're going to get there. But the the reality of life is we're we're living right now. You know, so we have this moment and we're shaped by everything around it, past and present. 
but we act and we live. Our behavior is now. And we can draw on our memories and to both improve ourselves and to you know, just remember fondly our past and think of our goals without getting stuck in them. So there's a difference between having a memory, whether it's good or bad, and just remembering and saying, oh, man, I, you know, I can't believe that that happened or I did that or, geez, you know, I, I could have done it differently. And then we can grow from that and we can use that to shape our present moment. Say, it's a, say we're in a room with somebody we love and suddenly remember something that that didn't go well in the past. Well, we can use that memory to shape the present right now. We're in the room right now. So instead of getting stuck in our memory and, and either getting angry or getting sad and then letting that letting that cloud our current moment with our loved one, we can remember that and then bounce right back to the present. Okay, that's over, but I'm here now. And I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be sad. I I, I want to be open and, and loving in this moment. So I'm going to cultivate that right now. I like that, Tanya. Yeah. Using those uh, memories and the, uh, our ability to imagine as um, inspiration tools or lessons, right? Applying the lessons we have learned. I agree. Um, so what is anxiety and how is anxiety different from worry and fears? They're used interchangeably, anxiety, worry, fear. I will write them separately because they are separate concepts. In fact, so the the DSM, that the DSM five, that is this huge volume. It's it's really thick, it's several inches thick, and it's the it's the official manual, it's the Bible of the American Psychiatric Association, and it's got all of the disorders in it. All of the things mentally that can go wrong with us are in this book that we know of. And they define anxiety and they separate it from fear, but they use the words interchangeably in the same sentence. It's really funny. If I had it marked, I'd pull it up and read the sentence, but it's fine. So fear, fear is, is future oriented. Wait, let me, let me back up here. Fear is actually, it's, it's present oriented or, or it's future oriented. If fear isn't in the past, but fear is, is a little bit more tangible than anxiety. Anxiety is this vague, notion of something is going to go wrong, whether, and there's different forms. There's social anxiety where you're worried about being judged or you're worried about embarrassing yourself. There's generalized anxiety where you're just worried. You just have your mind creates all of these worst case scenarios that this, that, and the other thing is going to go wrong and it's going to have bad consequences. And there's other types too. So that's anxiety. It's just vague, but it isn't it feels very real to the person. So when I say it's not real, I don't mean that it's somebody's making it up or that it's just fake and they can just dismiss it because that's not true. It's very real to that person, but there isn't a real tangible thing that's causing it that makes it really hard to deal with because you can't just you, you can't just look at this thing and face it. Whereas fear usually is related to an object, something extreme like a phobia, a phobia of spiders or snakes. Or a fear of failure. That's a little bit less tangible, but yet, you know, it's not a snake, but it's still, you've got one particular thing that you're afraid of. And then you get worry in there and worry, worry goes into both of those. Worry is a thought. It's a state of mind. It can also be a behavior, even though it's brain-based, but you're, you're in this, this worry mode and it's impacting your actions 
it's impacting everything. And so that's why I kind of call it a, a behavior as well. So that's kind of just a very quick overview of the difference and the similarities between the three. Yeah, it makes sense. And then I know that um, fear, worry, and anxiety will cause uh, stress, different kinds of stress. And I'm wondering if there is such a thing as healthy stress. Oh, absolutely. You know, fear, anxiety, stress, those are all related and they're, it's kind of circular, the cause and effect. One can, one can, you know, stress can cause worry and worry can ca- increase our stress. But stress itself is not is not bad it's our response to stress that becomes unhealthy it, well there are stressors too that are worse than others i mean that that's it's more complex than that but stress can be good stress can keep us on our toes when i was a first year high school teacher i was really 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 nervous about the first day of school and very stressed and because i you know and i i wanted it to go well and i i had a colleague who was a veteran teacher tell me that somebody had told him he still got nervous each first day of school. And, and you know, just all the time still was very anxious, very nervous. And he had had somebody tell him, a veteran teacher for him, <laughs> looked at him and said, you know, he said, the day that you don't feel nervous before going into your, you know, your first class, he said, it's the day that you need to retire from teaching because you don't care anymore. You know, you, you just that that way back at the beginning, you said, you know, what is what is life and what is purpose? And it's it's being centered, but it's caring about something. And that is that is stress. Trust stress is that that sense of I care about this and I want it to go go well. So it can be very fascinating. It can be very, very healthy. We don't want a life without stress. We just want a different relationship with our stress and anxiety. Yes. Wow, how how interesting. That made me think about mothers, that they sometimes can get so stressed and anxious, but that's because they care so much about their children. Right, exactly. And it can be very nurturing and very good. And sometimes it can manifest in unhealthy ways, too. (laughs) That self-awareness is important. Right, right. So how do we know when we are experiencing anxiety? And do we experience anxiety differently, all of us? Oh, definitely. Definitely, really. Um, you know, anxiety is is a similar experience. I think, I mean, everybody, I think, you know, instinctively can know, oh yeah, anxious, you know, anxiety, I recognize that. But but our individual manifestation is is so different. And how we know, the more we know ourselves, self-reflection is a great tool. The more we tune into ourselves, the more we can pause and say, wait a minute, I don't like the way I'm feeling right now. What is going on? And it might, for some people, it's very, very, very physical. We all have a physical and a mental component. But for some people, it's very physical. Some people will actually vomit if they're too anxious or too worried or their digestive system will act up in other ways. They'll just feel feel nauseous or feel a stomach ache or cramps or have some either diarrhea or constipation. Other people end up in the emergency room for chest pains. They think they're having a heart attack. And some doctors will just dismiss them and send them home and say, no, you're fine. And other doctors will say, wait a minute, you know, your heart is fine, but this is probably anxiety. Let's maybe examine that a little bit. Those are some doctors that are really good that are tuned in to the big picture. But it can be anywhere in our body. So if we listen, and it can be joint pain or muscle aches. It can, it can be headaches. 
vision problems. It can, it can be anything physical that's out of the ordinary. If you notice something and it's not right, that is your body talking to you and saying, hey, pay attention. I think, you know, we got some anxiety going on. Other people, it becomes a, they become very either teary and very upset easily. They cry easily or, or very irritable, argumentative, uh, defensive. And if that's something that's out of the ordinary for you, say, wait a minute, I just snapped at my son and I didn't mean that at all. Okay, what is, what is going on here? And a lot of times anxiety is, is to blame for that. It's kind of underlying some of those emotions, those behaviors and those physical sensations. Yeah, I like that a lot, Tanya, the uh, idea of knowing ourselves and listening to the body, right? The body never lies. I think we are our best tool. We are our own best beacon and tool to understand. So, you know, the more we can tune into ourselves, you know, the more we understand our anxiety. And also it goes back to like what you said with your purpose. That's how we find our purpose too. I mean, we are just, we are just amazing. We are just great for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> true. That's so true. Um, there's, I had a thought about, yeah, depression. Is depression somewhat connected to anxiety? They often overlap in people, uh, not always, but they can. Depression is, is a mood disorder and anxiety is its own class of disorders called, well, anxiety disorders. But, but because they do involve the brain and the body, there, there can be a lot of overlap and one can contribute to the other. It can be, if you live with chronic anxiety, that gets very wearing and very old and that can actually get you really down and and can contribute to either clinical depression or just that subjective thought of being depressed and feeling not right and then same with depression it, it can also cause a lot of anxiety because you begin to worry about the effects of your depression on yourself on your family on your finances so there's there there can be a lot of overlap between the two Plus, it's the human brain, and so you know the human brain d does things that you know can that contributes to other problems. Right, so complex, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the way it works. Um, you wrote, "In the space between you and your anxious thoughts lies peace." What is the connection between anxiety and overthinking, and what can we do about it? Oh, overthinking is one of the hallmarks of anxiety. Every, when we talked about earlier that everybody experiences anxiety uniquely, but also everybody has very, you know, similar things. Anxiety is similar for all of us. And that overthinking is, is one of the areas that is just similar. Now you and I might think about different things. Our, our, our overthinking has a different topic, but it's still something that is very, they're very plaguing. It just keeps us stuck. And those sticking with those, those anxious, those thoughts, you know, whether no matter what the thoughts, the worries are, if it's a memory and you're upset about it and you're worried, or if it's your role as a parent or your finances or being judged by your neighbor down the street, anything like that, you get stuck and then you get in this little vacuum and you're kind of in that bubble. So rather than being able to be centered and peaceful, your thoughts are just going and going. And the nature of thoughts is they, they feed on each other and they build and they snowball. And there was a statistic, and I wish I had it in front of me. It's actually in one of my books and if I, uh, about how many thoughts that we have per day. 
and it actually might be in a new book. It might not have been published. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, the, the amount of thoughts we have, not just in a day, but in a moment is mind boggling. I mean, it's tens of thousands of thoughts. So we're obviously not even aware of some of these. And if we let that one run rampant, that really, really keeps up, keeps us trapped in anxiety. Yeah. And what is the best? I know you have so many. Yeah, this is what the book is about. Ways to stop anxiety, but addressing the overthinking. What do you think is the best way? Would you say meditation, uh, therapy? Oh, oh it actually, again, individual differences. What works really great for one might not work so great for another, but both of the things you said are, are excellent. Both therapy, meditation. Basically, I think the root of it all, whether you're doing it with a therapist or on your own, whether you're formally meditating or sitting on a cushion in that introspective position, or you are kind of what I say, you know, meditating on the run, which can seem like an oxymoron, but when you piece it, when you take it apart, it, it isn't. It's that centering. And it kind of begins with, with again, yourself, with your breath. The brain is like 2% of our body weight and yet has a huge, takes up a huge percentage of our oxygen. So the instant that we stop and take a slow, deep breath, we bathe our brain in, in healing oxygen, healing energy. It instantly begins to calm down what's called the sympathetic nervous system. That's your fight or flight response in your body. And it, that breath will activate the parasympathetic, which is what people sometimes call rest and digest. So just the act of breathing can be very, very calming. It can create that space between those thoughts, you know, that are racing and bouncing everywhere. So that, of course, now does breathing get rid of the anxious thoughts and immediately you know, eradicate anxiety? Oh, absolutely not. It won't do that. But what it does is calm you and center you and give you a chance to reset. And it actually is just like this peaceful bath for, for the entire body to just slow it down. And then you can do other things. But when the, the first thing when you're anxious is to just stop, you know, pause and, and breathe. That's a physical reset for brain and body. I love that. It, it's so, so true. Is that the same, the method that you mentioned in the book, um, intentional breathing? How can we do it? There are different you know, ways. There's different breathing techniques. Uh, the important thing is with that intention, it just basically refers to tuning in and breathing on purpose. Because then you've engaged your physiology, you've engaged your body, your lungs, your, you, you've activated that parasympathetic nervous system, but you've also engaged your thoughts and your emotions because you're doing it intentionally. Now, most of the time we, we breathe obviously constantly and we're not even aware of it. But you pause and you think about it. And with intentional breathing, you focus on that sound and on the feel of your breath. You can count. Some people, we don't have a, a visual screen, but if you hold your hand in front of you, you know, some people will take a finger and place it at the base of their thumb and move it up their thumb as they inhale and then pause at the top and then down as they exhale and then up the next finger 
pause and then down. And then all the way through that hand, that's, you know, five deep, slow breaths. Sometimes it works just to put your hands on your belly and let your, let your belly breathe out into your hands and then feel it as you exhale, feel it go back in. So you're inhaling and it goes out and then exhale. And the key is to make it slow and deep because when we're anxious, we naturally breathe faster and shallow. And that's where we get that accelerated heart rate. We feel short of breath. We might feel lightheaded because we're breathing too quickly and we're breathing shallow up in the upper part of our chest. So you just, again, slow, deep. You can use that visual. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist monk, uh, wise, wise man. I, I have a great deal of respect for him and, and his work and what he, he writes and does. But he... I mean, everything to him is about the breath. And he advises people to just sit, whether it's in meditation, sitting or walking meditation, or you're at work and you catch yourself being anxious. It doesn't matter where you are. That's what's cool about this. You have your breath with you all the time. It's there. It's just your instant thing. You don't need anything fancy. And he said, you can just say, this is my in-breath. This is my out-breath or my exhale. And telling yourself, this is my inhale or my in-breath. This is my exhale or my out-breath. That overrides your thoughts. Mm, Because you're thinking, you're giving words to that breath. And yeah, your thoughts, your anxious thoughts are still coming, but you ignore them. You don't fight with them. Don't try to push them away. Don't try to change them. Just let them be there. But then you keep thinking your words. This is my in-breath. This is my out breath. Now you've calmed your thoughts and your body. Yeah, the body too, right? That's so wonderful. I have a question about the exhale. Can we exhale through our mouth or could be can only be through the nose and nostrils? It can it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> Since you're asking me, <laughs> I say you can do it however it is comfortable for you. Now, the if you read the, you know, like any official how to breathe type of book, the official advice is in through your nose and then out through your mouth. I like that better. Yeah, for me. I, right. Yeah, for me, that feels right. I guess that's because I've done it. So I, I usually go in through my nose. Now, sometimes my nose gets really stuffy because I have very dry eyes and nose and mouth. And can be, I can, sometimes I find it hard to get a good deep breath in through my nose. So even though the official recommendation is breathe in through my nose, sometimes for my own sense of being centered and well in that moment, I will breathe through my mouth. So I give everybody permission to breathe in the way that is going to be comfortable for them. In the efficiency into those out through the mouth, but but again, do do what you need to do mm-hmm. to breathe slowly and deeply and center yourself. Yeah, this is a powerful technique. You know, no doubt about it. Um, how is the Buddhist concept of attachment connected to anxiety? Oh my gosh, that is huge. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is actually one of my favorite concepts, and it doesn't. So I'll put a little caveat. It does come from Buddhism. It is a Buddhist con, con, concept, excuse me. 
and some people bristle. Uh, if you have a very a religious background that is something other than Buddhist, you can still embrace this because it's also Buddhism, the, the philosophy, in addition to the religion. So this doesn't conflict with any any religious teachings, uh, but it is it is Buddhist. There's a word, a Buddhist word called Shenpa. And Shenpa is getting hooked. And that's if you're too attached to something. So uh, I believe actually one of my exercises in here is go, go fishing without a hook. You know, don't, don't, don't get hooked on your thoughts. You know, you can, you can, you know, your thoughts are there and fighting with them only gets you hooked on them. So you, you stick to them and you're hooked and now you're ruminating and you're thinking of that anxious thought over and over and over. But go fishing, just, you know, kind of let your, let yourself be, let your thoughts be what they are without being attached to them. It's just this non-attachment, this non-hooked. And again, it can go back to your breath. If you need to tell yourself in breath, out breath, you know, to give yourself something to think about or look at an object and keep bringing your thoughts to that object. So you don't stick to your thoughts. So there's there's one type of, of attachment and non-attachment. And when we're attached to our thoughts, we are very, very, we tend to be very, very anxious about them because they grow. And sometimes, a little another thing, if I might here, also getting attached to an outcome, having expectations that something has to be a certain way, that kind of attachment can also cause anxiety because we are, have this rigid inflexible. It has to be this way, or I have to do this. I have to get it this way, or I'm a failure or this outcome. My relationship has to look just like this, or it's a terrible relationship. That also, that type of attachment to a certain outcome also causes anxiety. Wow. Yeah. That makes me think about freedom again. We talked earlier and what you mentioned about the space in between thoughts that we are not thoughts. When we realize that, then it, we realize also that there is peace, inner peace in there. And this also made me think about control and that control has a lot to do with fear. So this idea, this um, obsession with control and with outcomes, like you said, expectations and all that it has to do with fear. You know, we're afraid of letting go, of surrendering, of being more open to life. Exactly. And that, that, that can really, really, really plague us. It can really limit our life. It limits our freedom. It limits our ability to just be right now. You had asked a while ago about, you know, right now, this, this anxiety with all the coronavirus, there's so much that's uncertain and we can't control what isn't certain. And our, the human brain doesn't like that. The human brain wants control. And when it doesn't have it, it freaks out. So that this this uncertainty right now and this lack of ability to control, you know, when I'm going back to work or when I'm going back to school or what supplies are going to be on the shelves when I go to the store. We can't control that. And that that needing to control that being attached to that need for certainty and control really, really makes anxiety skyrocket. Mm. And that leads me into my next question about flow, letting life flow. How is flow one of the biggest components of mental health and well-being. Oh, it's huge, 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 huge. Uh, 
Matt, and I apologize out there if, if, he, if he isn't listening, because I, I may butcher his name, but McKaylee Cheeks McKaylee is a researcher in the field of positive psychology, and he kind of um, is credited with a lot of what we know about flow. He kind of oh, coined the term or is credited with coining the term, and, you know, f- flow, I get, I'm sorry, I got a little little bit ahead of myself, but... Uh, so back up here with flow, just being able to, first of all, relax, let go of that need for control and be able to be flexible, psychologically flexible and be in your moment and accept your moment for, for what it is and, and take action to do good things in that moment. So kind of everything we've talked about wraps up into that being just in the flow of life. And then that kind of segues to Cheeks Mahaley, and he, he he talks about creating your flow. You find flow. You can release anxiety in your anxious thoughts when you are fully immersed in something that you love doing. So one way to beat anxiety, whether it's right now or any other time, is to have things that you're passionate about and that you enjoy doing. And you just get into this flow where you are immersed in it. And those anxious thoughts are off somewhere else because you are concentrating. You're fully present. You're mindful. You're in your moment and you're flowing with what is happening. What another wonderful perspective, right? I would say. It's not even a method or anything, but just um, a new perspective, a new way of living and, and thinking about life. Right. To me, I, I, I'm glad you used that word because so much of getting handle on our anxiety and living in a centered, present way is about perspective. And one of which is that you talk about, it's kind of funny, is the shoulds, how they cause a lot of inner tension, you say, and stress. Talk to me about that, <laughs> the shoulds. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. That is one of the, and this comes from cognitive behavioral therapy and also another similar but different therapy called rational emotive behavior therapy or mm-hmm. REBT. And I can, I can never remember if it was Albert Ellis or Aaron Beck. Albert Ellis was the man credited with founding our REBT and Aaron Beck was cognitive behavioral therapy and they kind of developed side by side to each other. And one of them used the term, you're shooting all over yourself. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, which and he, he meant it to be crass, so I apologize. To, but he did that on purpose because it really makes people think, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that kind of is the effect of shoulding. You know, I'm shoulding. I'm, I'm telling myself I should do this and I should do that or I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't have said that. That is hallmark in both anxiety and depression. It just keeps us stuck and very it limits our freedom. Uh, when we have these rules for ourselves that that I have to behave in this certain way, or I have to say this right, or I'm a worthless person. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Or going back into the past. Gosh, I should have done this differently. Uh, That type of should thinking of shooting all over ourselves. (laughs) We're not treating ourselves very well when we're, when we're doing that, we are uh, doing ourselves a, a disservice by being stuck in those those rigid rules and it's and we all do it i still catch myself doing it the key is to catch yourself doing it and then switch your thinking yeah yeah. 
changing the way yeah, of those patterns, right, Tanya? So connected to what we just talked about, shoulds, the way I see it, it's being unkind to ourselves, trying to uh, create a, a reality that's not there, not accepting reality. So talk to me about self-love, the non-judgmental perspective, affirmations, the, the idea that we perfectionism that gets in the way, and also this feeling that we are not enough. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so sad how we are so many times our own worst enemy. And for most of my life, I was absolutely my own worst enemy. I've had anxiety, experienced anxiety since I was very little. And now I don't, although I will say, wait a minute, let's back that up because everybody experiences anxiety and I still experience it but I recognize it and I'm able to pull on things to come out of it. It doesn't plague me anymore. But a huge part of that was I I was for the longest time, very, very, very hard on myself. I expect my expectations for perfection were inhuman. And every time I made a mistake, I berated myself and I lived with that. And I would replay conversations in my head over and over and all the things that I said that were just stupid or wrong or I mean, I would get myself so worked up and and we all do that in our own way. And it's very, very sad. Uh, I think it's a process. It's a journey. We can't just do it overnight. Just say, oh, I'm going to start loving myself because we know we won't. We'll go right back to those old thinking patterns. But start, just, I think if we all are nice to ourselves, that is such an important first step. When you catch yourself being being mean, and again, I, I still do that, but I'm aware of it. And then I, I question, I think, wait a minute, is that, do I really deserve this? Is this really accurate? You know, and, and that's not the same as narcissism. You know, you're you know, somebody who is narcissistic love worships themselves and they put themselves on a pedestal above everybody else and they will manipulate people for their own good. That's not self-love. Self, you know, self-love is just recognizing your yourself, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and embrace them all. Forgive yourself for what you do wrong and catch yourself for all of the many, many things you do right and celebrate that. Mm, yeah, the appreciation, uh, gratitude for the gifts, yeah, for the talents we have. I love that. So your book um, has so much information. Um, another part that I really found to be interesting was the uh, the foods. You mentioned foods that could fuel um, our anxiety, the ones that don't help and foods that will help us to reduce anxiety. That is so wonderful. And you have sections about anxiety in our relationships, also daily and nightly worries that's so interesting too. And then uh, the final section five, it's stop anxiety for life. So um, there are so many things that we could talk about today, but I wish we meet again and we continue the conversation, Tanya. Oh, it was wonderful. This has been terrific. Thank you, Valeria. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be asking you my final questions, but before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Sure, I will. Let me, um, you know, the book is full of action steps to take now and different things. Okay, this one, yeah. this one, I I just kind of, I was paging through it and I stuck my finger in this one just now. It says, 
connect to something greater than anxiety, which I think is is huge. It, it kind of wraps up a lot of the things that we've talked about. And it's good right now because our lives right now, thinking with this pandemic, things are so narrowly focused now and we're stuck in that. We see it all the time and we hear it. So broadening that, just connect. And whether it's pan- about this pandemic or down the road when it's over and you're anxious about something else. So this is tip number 74, connect to something greater than anxiety. Uh, one of the cruelest things that anxiety can possibly do to us is to restrict our outlook on our lives and the world around us. Anxiety attaches itself to us to make sure we don't look past it to find better things. It slaps blinders on us to limit what we see, creating a very narrow view of what life is all about. And and I don't I, I don't know how much time we have, so I won't read the whole thing. But it's it's just a page and a little bit on the other stage, but. One little excerpt I have is some suggestion. Some suggestions. Uh, this it's an act of expansion. We we sometimes call it awe or wonder, or transcendence, rising above problems. Mm-hmm. To develop a connection to something bigger, begin to seek and appreciate beauty. Uh, wonder inspiring activities mm-hmm. include, and then I have them bulleted: uh, stargazing. And if you can't sleep, this is also another activity in the middle of the night. <laughs> you have access to Visiting a zoo or a butterfly house, going to a symphony, hiking and enjoying the beauty of nature rather than breezing past it. And if you can't get to a hiking trail, walk outside of your apartment or your house and look at the, the trees and the grass and, and just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Enjoy art. Uh, watching professional sports and admiring the athleticism. Uh, that is another form of art. And then my action step to take now, I'll skip over a couple paragraphs, but action step to take now, identify something beautiful where you are now. Pause and appreciate this beautiful thing for several quiet moments. Marvel at the details of it and appreciate the whole object too. Thank you so much for your work. It's so the intention is so beautiful. You are trying every way to help others. I keep going back to that word, that phrase. <laughs> and I do. I, I try. I want to reach different. I have different formats. I have workbooks. I have journals. I have this 101 ways to stop anxiety is a collection of methods and techniques to reach different, different people in different ways because we all learn and respond to things differently. So true. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you so much for what you do. And uh, my final questions. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Oh, my. The, hard, the hardest lesson to learn was simply to look at myself and see myself as, as a person, to give myself permission to, to humanize myself, to, to not be so hard on myself, to accept my weaknesses as just part of being human and not some huge flaw that's endangering the entire planet. And because that's actually, that's a little extreme. And also to allow myself to say, hey, I do have some things to offer. My things might be different than than your things, but that doesn't make my things worse or your things worse. We all have our our things and, and allowing myself to accept that about myself too, that that has actually been difficult, but it's been a very rewarding journey. Yeah. Wow. And we all can relate to it. I'm sure. Definitely. Um, Definitely. It's part of being human is coming to terms with ourselves. Oh, yes. What is another word for healing? Oh my gosh. I love the word healing. Another word for healing is 
I'm going to, I used it before. I'm going to say centering, centering that mind and body, or also one of my favorite words is thriving. It goes even beyond healing. Thriving is another, I I like that. I'm going to change centering to thriving. Thriving is my other word for healing. I like that too. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you change anything about your life or do anything differently? You know, honestly, finally, I would say that I, I would not. I enjoy the way I live. It's it's not perfect by any means, but we can't have perfection. I live pretty simply and, and I enjoy that. I, I think I would just do more of what works. I, I would do, I would intentionally And I tried to do this anyway, but I think I would probably really step up my game at it if I knew that the end were near. I I would just be more intentional about living in the moment and enjoying what's here. Rather than worrying about what I can't control, I would even more so enjoy what I can. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And the interesting thing is that we don't know when that will happen, right? So it's a good way to be a, a good thing to reflect upon the end. Mm-hmm. It is. And that's that's where being present helps a lot too, that mindfulness, because our life, the only life we have is this moment. Right. We The, uh, the past is yeah. done and we don't know the future. So embrace embrace your moment the way it is and, and make it the best that you can. Yeah. Yes. Do you believe in life after death? You know, I don't know. I think I do. I don't know how to define it, though. Um, not necessarily a stereotypical picture, but but there, there's got to be something, you know, with all of our energy and, and this connection that's here and the, the meaning that we have there. There's got to be something else. I just don't know what it is. Fair enough. <laughs> what are three things about life you know for sure? Um, one, that... It is, I know for sure that it is a process that we are always engaged in. There's never, well, I guess until you die, there's never an end point to okay. our development and our evolution. Yeah. Another thing about life that I know for sure is there's always going to be challenges and difficulties and imperfections. And we, we can't, we can, no matter what we do, we cannot make it perfect and we can't get rid of our challenges So the third thing I know is that those challenges don't trap us. We are free beyond those challenges. We Mm -hmm. have freedom to make our moments good, to make our lives good. And we can thrive Mm -hmm. despite the challenges that are in our lives. Beautiful. Where can we find more information about you, your books, work, uh, products, services, and future projects, Tanya? Uh, my home base is my website, and that's actually a work in progress right now. What you see, uh, in fact, when this airs, it might even be up and new. So the, the appearance is going to change, but the URL is the same. My home base is tanyajpeterson.com. That's T-A-N-Y-A-J-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. And then from there are links Uh, You can subscribe to my newsletter. I send it, oh, approximately once or twice a month. I try not to spam people, but I try to give enough helpful stuff, you know, so it is relevant to them. And um, I have links to my social media accounts right on my website. And I would love, I'd love to grow and to connect with people. So please, I invite you to visit my website and to, to find me online. Really great. Thank you so much again, Tanya. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, Valeria. It's been a pleasure. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. 
To learn more about Tanya J. Peterson, please visit her website, tanyajpeterson.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.